Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about esophageal cancer with Dr. Harry Eslanian. Dr. Eslanian is a professor of medicine and director of endoscopic ultrasound at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Dr. Aslanian, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Yeah, so I'm a, a gastroenterologist and I work as part of the uh, Yale Advanced Endoscopy team. So, uh, endoscopy, it's sort of its own subspecialty in gastroenterology where we perform a variety of specialized scope procedures, very commonly uh, to diagnose and stage and, uh, and more frequently also treat uh, early cancers of the esophagus, stomach, small bowel, uh, like uh, colon. And we can also uh, uh, diagnose and treat some pancreas and biliary diseases. So that sounds uh, awesome. Now, um, the question that I have for you is, you know, we we talk a lot about cancer on this show, clearly, Yell Cancer Answers. Um, what, we don't often talk about esophageal cancer. So you, can you kind of paint the landscape for us on that? Um, what exactly is esophageal cancer? How common is it? Who gets it? That kind of stuff. Yeah, it, there's a lot of interesting, um, you know, features. We often kind of take the esophagus for granted and think of, you know, just a tube that we are able to swallow something and swallowing is quite a complex mechanism to get something to transfer uh, from our mouths into the esophagus. Um, but once it reaches the esophagus, uh, the esophagus also, um, it has a, a musculature and like uh, an electrical motor that um, has a stripping wave that carries the uh, food down from the upper esophagus uh, towards the stomach. And um, then there's a valve called the lower esophageal sphincter that uh, is coordinates with that uh, electrical motor. So we want to open that valve to let the food out of the esophagus um, at the right time, because then the stomach does its important job. It's a very acidic environment, and it's grinding up and digesting the food. So we don't want all of that uh, acid and bile that's in the stomach to be coming up into the esophagus. So that lower valve uh, will be shut most of the time. And because bile, um, and uh, which happens to be alkaline, and then stomach acid um, can be very irritating to the esophagus and cause a lot of inflammation. So the symptoms of you know heartburn are extremely common. And we all experience that usually at, at some point or other. And um, and that's also why the medications to block stomach acid called proton pump inhibitors and the older ones, uh, H2 blockers, um, which would be like uh, brand names like Pepsid or Prilosec, um, <clears throat> are extremely common and are, you know, multi-billion dollar medications across the world because these symptoms are so common. And just a little more background about the esophagus. So the the esophagus itself is normally lined by squamous mucosa. So those are the kind of cells that line our skin. And um, so one type of cancer that arises from uh, the squamous lining is called squamous cell cancer. And that 
uh, can occur anywhere throughout the esophagus, and it can be multiple locations. And that's the cancer that's much more common around the world. Um, So esophageal cancer overall is the eighth most common cancer worldwide and the sixth most common cause of cancer death. But in countries uh, across Africa and Asia, uh, there's some uh, areas where there's a lot of squamous cell cancer. And um, uh, factors that are thought to contribute to that include like smoking, alcohol, poor nutrition. And um, uh, But in the United States uh, and Western countries, um, uh, a different type of cell has become the most common cancer that we call um, adenocarcinoma. So the cells lining the stomach are, are a different type. And um, there's this process that's thought to be related to chronic acid reflux, where the most, uh, the more resistant stomach lining called columnar cells grow upwards into the bottom of the esophagus to uh, kind of make that more resistant to stomach acid. And some people think that might have been an evolutionary process as an adaptation to reduce the symptoms of heartburn. So it seems like a fine thing, but... Um, Unfortunately, there's a small risk that that lining, uh, which is metaplasia when one cell moves from one spot to another, sometimes we call it Barrett's esophagus, has a greater risk of getting precancerous change. And that can uh, lead to um, <clears throat> adenocarcinoma of the esophagus, which is the most common type we see in uh, the United States. And so in the U.S., how many people every year get esophageal cancer and how would they know what the first symptoms are? I mean, is that heartburn? But as you mentioned, heartburn's really kind of common. Yes, absolutely. So that is part of the uh, the challenge. I think um, esophageal cancer accounts for about 1% of all cancers in the United States, and uh, which amounts to about 16,000 people a year. Um And like many uh, situations with cancer screening, the symptoms either develop uh, too late, and if we go by symptoms, then then the cancer is already in advanced stage, but the early symptoms may be so common that very few people actually have those symptoms. So the late symptoms of esophageal cancer would be difficulty swallowing. So as... um, uh, you know, the, uh, if, if a cancer grows in the tube of the esophagus, it starts to take up space and it'll block the transit of food. So certainly if someone had, you know, new onset difficulty swallowing, that's very important to uh, see your doctor and investigate that. And then uh, the sort of, uh, um, we know that uh, acid reflux is a risk factor uh, for developing Barrett's esophagus and for chronic inflammation of the esophagus. And like anywhere in the body, if you have chronic inflammation that puts stress on the cells and may lead to um, the cells having trouble repairing themselves and, and some type of abnormality like a precancerous condition developing. So, um, so that is the challenge then. If we have a very common symptom like heartburn, or sometimes we call it GERD, gastroesophageal reflux uh, uh, disease, um, how do we uh, then identify amongst all of that large group which people would benefit from screening? And that's been looked at. It's um, and like many areas, um, uh, 
it's not still not entirely clear because only a small proportion of people that have acid reflux will have Barrett's esophagus or will be predisposed to esophageal cancer. But the typically the most effective way we do that is by endoscopy. So that's a scope procedure with a a light and a, a camera at the end of the scope, and we can carefully examine the lining, the mucosal lining of the um, esophagus and the junction, that valve where the stomach and the esophagus meet and the stomach. And um, so we're looking for signs of inflammation. We call that esophagitis or uh, Barrett's esophagus, which is that cell type that's acid resistant growing upwards from the stomach. And then also, most importantly, we then can take biopsies if there's <clears throat> uh, Barrett's esophagus to make sure there's no dysplasia or precancerous change. And so the, the population that seems to benefit the most uh, from uh, screening for Barrett's esophagus um, includes uh, people with chronic reflux, age over 50. Um, in, in the case of Barrett's, males more common than females. Um, and more common in those uh, uh, who are Caucasian versus when we talked about squamous cell cancer, um, we see that more commonly in regions of Africa and Asia. So so just a couple of questions to clarify. When you say um, chronic reflux, how, how long does reflux need to go on for for it to be classified as chronic? I mean, or is it a matter of more... The, the frequency. In other words, if you get heartburn, you know, once in a while, you know, after a large meal, uh, that really doesn't count. But if you get reflux every day, then that counts. So can you kind of tell us what classifies as, as chronic reflux? And then for the people who do fit that criteria, who are over 50, who have chronic reflux, how often should they be getting an endoscopy? Yeah, all very good questions. And um, <clears throat> so um, for length of time, as so, sort of a uh, general rule of thumb, some uh, uh, medical organizations have suggested five years or longer of symptoms as sort of uh, defining chronic. But you're right, pretty much everyone we know, if we eat certain foods or drink certain things, we're going to have reflux that evening. So it's really... Um, looking at the frequency as well. So symptoms that are perhaps occurring on a daily basis or several times per week over uh, five years or longer uh, period um, would, would certainly, uh, you know, raise concern. But, and again, this is where it gets tricky is that in the esophagus, you can have, uh, you know, significant regular reflux, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have uh, actual tissue damage or inflammation, or that that you're going to have Barrett's esophagus. So even in amongst those higher uh, sort of risk group to have Barrett's esophagus, it might only be about twenty percent of that group that will ultimately have it. But um, and then and then another sort of uh, risk stratification is that if there's at the initial uh, identification of Barrett's esophagus. If there's no dysplasia or precancers change, the risk is very low. And um, so that's a very important distinction. So if the medical term for precancers change is that dysplasia, and we can grade that as lower high grade, and if that's present, then we now have technology through the scope to kind of ablate the lining of the Barrett's esophagus in a very controlled fashion. So with a, 
a series of scope procedures, we can actually convert that Barrett's lining back to a normal lining in most cases in about 80% of the time. But it's really only worth doing that if there's dysplasia. Without precancerous change, the Barrett's is so low risk that it's it's not really beneficial to pursue that series of scope procedures. And then in, if um, no dysplasia with the Barrett's, we would repeat the scope in roughly three to five years. Okay. So getting back to one of the things that you mentioned um, at the top of the show, which is that there's these two forms, right? The squamous cell uh, carcinoma and the adeno. And the Barrett's is really more in that latter group. But the squamous tends to be really frequent in parts of Asia and Africa. And you mentioned um, that there were a number of reasons for that, smoking and alcohol and poor nutrition. So a couple of questions on that. If people are in the U.S., but they smoke and they drink, and maybe they have poor nutrition as well, there are plenty of food deserts in this country too, um, are they at risk of squamous cell carcinoma? And if so, um, does screening apply to them too? And the second part of the question is, is there a genetic link for esophageal cancers that might uh, make this more common in certain parts of the world rather than in the U.S.? Yes, yes, very interesting. And and as you, you know, well know, these these themes kind of show up in many different sort of uh, cancer questions across different uh, types of cancers. So it's it seems to be multifactorial that there is some genetic predisposition, um, and um, towards either getting you know squamous cancer versus uh, the uh, adenocarcinoma, and and then also. Uh, some behavioral or environmental exposures as well. So like we see in other settings like colon cancer, when you move, say, from one country like Japan to the United States, your, your, you know, cancer profile shifts. So there are some dietary and environmental exposures that likely are a factor and um, that, that are often very difficult to kind of tease out exactly uh, what are the greatest factors in addition to it genetic predisposition. One thing that's interesting that was has been identified in, in studies for squamous uh, cell cancer um, in Africa and Asia is um, uh, 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 the practice of drinking very hot liquids. Often drinking f- uh, frequent very hot tea is um, is part of the culture. And, um, and that's been thought to uh, uh, irritate the esophagus and stress the esophagus. So that's an interesting um, Uh, environmental uh, sort of uh, cultural factor as well. Hmm. All right. Well, we're going to pick up this conversation right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about esophageal cancer with my guest, Dr. Harry Aslanian. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where their cancer genetics and prevention program includes a colon cancer genetics and prevention program that provides comprehensive risk assessment, education, and screening. SmiloCancerHospital.org. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine. Quitting smoking is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment, as it's been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. All treatment components are evidence-based, 
and patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar, and I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. Harry Aslanian. We're learning about the care of patients with esophageal cancer in honor of Esophageal Cancer Awareness Month. Now, before the break, uh, Harry, you were telling us about two different kinds of esophageal cancer, squamous cell carcinoma, which tends to be very common in Asia and Africa, and adenocarcinoma, which tends to be more frequent here in the U.S., often caused by um, gastroesophageal reflux, um, which can lead to this precancerous uh, uh, lesion uh, with dysplasia found in Barrett's esophagus. So when you were telling us a bit about Barrett's esophagus, you started to tell us a bit more about how this could be treated endoscopically such that you can actually ablate the lining um, of that Barrett's and turn it back into normal epithelium. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that and whether, in fact, do those patients in whom you do ablate, is their risk, does their risk go back to baseline? Yeah, it's it's been a, an exciting development for us. We have very like highly calibrated tools now that can ablate the thin mucosal lining, which is the inner surface of the esophagus, just enough energy uh, called radiofrequency ablation to uh, treat that without damaging the wall of the esophagus. And uh, in about 80% of cases, we can uh, remove the precancerous change and, and also uh, clear out all of the Barrett's. And um, the durability of those treatments appears to be very good, where uh, there's only about 2% uh, per year uh, recurrence of Barrett's. And um, it's typically uh, non-dysplastic Barrett's that can just be uh, retreated. Um, so... <clears throat> Um, this uh, rate of conversion um, has been uh, very uh, reliable and very safe and, and uh, long-lasting. Now, not all patients um, will present with Barrett's. At the top of the show, you were mentioning that, you know, esophageal cancer is one of these that's really tricky in the sense that um, if you don't have symptoms or you have things like reflux, many of us get that, and it has nothing to do with esophageal cancer, um, unless you know it leads to something like Barrett's and dysplasia. And so, oftentimes, patients may present late with symptoms like "I can't swallow." Um, so, in those patients who you know go to their doctor because they're having difficulty swallowing. And they have a scope test which finds a mass uh, as opposed to simply a little bit of dysplasia that you can ablate. One would think that the, the treatment of those cancers is a little bit different. Is that right? Yes. And um, so the, the sort of warning signs of, of something uh, 
uh, more serious. Um, like you mentioned, difficulty swallowing is something you, that you would want to be aware of and, and talk to your doctor about very promptly. Um, and other signs would be bleeding. Uh, so bleeding from the esophagus or stomach typically would present as very dark black stools because the blood gets digested by the stomach acid and then turns a very dark color as it passes out through the uh, colon and through the bottom. And also weight loss uh, would be um, uh, another uh, concerning symptom or like vomiting or feeling like food is getting stuck or uh, um, having to regurgitate food. So these are all signs of something larger that could be blocking um, the esophagus. And early detection, as in many other cancers, is uh, very important because we know that the earlier stages um, have much better uh, treatment options and and much better chance of a curative uh, and long-lasting uh, therapy. So, um, so endoscopy is is. Uh, uh, the mainstay of, of the initial sort of assessment and diagnosis of these kinds of symptoms. And so we can, uh, uh, you know, uh, very <clears throat> comfortably pass a, a scope through the mouth under anesthesia and examine the lining of the esophagus and the stomach and then get biopsies of the, um, <clears throat> of the esophagus and stomach. And then if there is a uh, growth or tumor uh, in in the esophagus or upper stomach. Um, we uh, use a combination of tools like in other cancers. Um, we'll use uh, CAT scans to determine to make sure that none of the cancer cells have spread to other areas around the body. And then we use uh, this combination of ultrasound and endoscopy called endoscopic ultrasound, where we do an ultrasound right inside the uh, esophagus and right next to the tumor and we determine how deep into the wall the uh, tumor goes. We call that a T stage. And then we determine if there's any lymph nodes that look like they're involved with cancer, uh, which is uh, the N stage. We call that local staging. And the uh, depth that the cancer goes into the esophageal wall um, uh, determines the stage and determines what treatments would be uh, most effective and appropriate. If we catch something really early where it's just sitting on the mucosal surface, more and more we can treat those very early cancers right through the scope where we can uh, cut them out uh, uh, either with a by placing a band around the tissue and grabbing it away from the wall and cutting it or a specialized uh, technique that uh, uh, we can perform called endoscopic submucosal dissection or ESD where we cut around the cancer and then cut underneath it um, to uh, separate it from the wall. But as the cancer grows deeper into the wall, there's a fat layer and a muscle layer below the mucosa, then it requires uh, more extensive therapy. So if it's very early just into the wall, then uh, surgery can be pursued. And as it goes through the wall or spreads to other areas, then typically a combination of radiation and chemotherapy is pursued. Um, and then after the uh, tumor is shrunken, which is can be done very effectively with those medications, then surgery is considered to remove that area. And so with that surgery, would that surgery at that point be done through a scope or would that mean a bigger operation? Yes, that, uh, that surgery is done uh, uh, most typically by thoracic surgeons um, and it involves uh, uh, cutting out the affected piece of the esophagus and they do a special uh, kind of lengthening procedure to 
pull up the uh, stomach and connect it uh, up to the esophagus higher up in the in the chest. So, um, uh, so it's um, in expert hands. The outcomes are are very good, uh, but it's it's a rather large operation. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it would be um, a lot better to catch this early and have what sounds like a fairly minor surgery done through the scope where, um, would that be like a day surgery? Do you even have to stay in hospital after you do one of these um, these resections uh, through the scope? Yeah, most commonly we're able to send people home the same day. Occasionally we'll uh, observe someone overnight in the hospital, but um, uh, but it is uh, it, you know uh, very remarkable how the uh, you know the 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 necessary treatment changes as the um, cancer becomes more uh, involved and and grows deeper. So talk a little bit about how you really evaluate these lymph nodes. I mean, one can understand that if you have a, a scope and you put it down the esophagus and you see the little cancer, you can take it out or ablate it or, uh, you know, resect it, do whatever. But the lymph nodes aren't in the esophagus. So how do you really assess them and how do you tell whether those harbor cancers? So many of our listeners may be familiar with other kinds of cancers where you actually need to kind of look at those lymph nodes and often take a biopsy to know that those aren't involved. How does that work in esophageal cancer? Yes. And um, so uh, lymph nodes, um, as you know, are uh, live in various spots throughout the body, and they're kind of like filters for different regions of the body. So when we get like a sore throat, um, you know, your doctor might feel your neck to see if there's any swollen lymph nodes. And so those lymph nodes are always there, but if they're swollen and enlarged, they're reacting to something. And that often is like uh, inflammation due to infection, um, or uh, sometimes they, it, they can be responding to the spread of uh, cancer cells. And um, so that often is a challenge throughout um, cancer staging is to determine, you know, how do we know if cancers, uh, and these might be very microscopic amounts of cells, have traveled from the site of the original cancer and then have sort of been filtered by a, by a lymph node nearby. So in esophageal cancer, when we use the ultrasound uh, probe at the tip of the scope, um, we can see through the wall of the esophagus and we can see the surrounding structures and those include lymph nodes. So we look at the node and as it gets larger, darker or rounder on ultrasound, then we become concerned that it may be involved with the cancer. And in some cases we can do um, a biopsy right through the ultrasound scope. We can pass this uh, flexible long needle through the scope and then safely pass it through the wall of the esophagus and stomach to get uh, samples uh, of lymph nodes. Um, we don't typically do that for lymph nodes right next to the cancer because we wouldn't be able to tell if the cancer cells came from the primary tumor or from the lymph node. But if there's um, uh, lymph nodes further away from the cancer, then we can directly sample them. In other uh, uh, imaging modalities like uh, CAT scan, they also look for the size and features of lymph node. And then there's PET scans that look at the... Um, sort of metabolic activity of the lymph nodes. And as it gets very active, can also help distinguish between inflammation and cancer. 
How often do we do CAT scans and PET scans and so on in esophageal cancer to look at distant metastatic disease? Yeah, so it's it's very important as part of the um, the initial staging. So um, and uh, so the accuracy of that initial staging is very important so that we can fit the treatment to the problem. So we don't want to undertreat, we don't want to overtreat. Um, so that initial uh, staging, including uh, CAT scans, um, sometimes PET scan uh, for esophageal co- uh, cancer, we'll almost always do that endoscopic ultrasound as well. Um, and then, um, then from there, uh, you know, we work as a multidisciplinary team with the radiologists who look at the scans, uh, the pathologists who look at the biopsies, the surgeons, and the oncologists, and the radiation oncologists, and then make a treatment plan. And, um, and then once the treatment uh, begins, then um, uh, uh, the uh, oncologist typically would um, have a, a set protocol where they'll, you know, get periodic stan- scans as the treatments progress. And then again, once the treatment's completed. Dr. Harry Eslanian is a professor of medicine and director of endoscopic ultrasound at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.